1: is the tom hartman program michael Harriot is tweeting i'm just here to remind you all that when a cop killed brian hundley a jury found that the cop lied this is uh, rebecca Ann tweeted it originally in this civil case the family of a black dentist who was stopped in his car and shot by an off-duty policeman that family sued the officer for damages a jury found the officer lied when he claimed the dentist lunged at him and awarded the family $242,000. Brett Kavanaugh overturned that verdict. Right. And now we're finding, I mean, just the, the multiple lies of Brett Kavanaugh. It's just breathtaking, the lies of Brett Kavanaugh. He testified before the United States Senate under oath that he learned of Deborah Ramirez's claims in September when the article was published in The New Yorker, when The New Yorker article came out. And now it turns out that back in July, back in July, Brett Kavanaugh was texting and talking with his old friends from Yale about Deborah Ramirez and, you know, trying to basically line up their stories. There's an amazing piece over at Huffington Post titled, All the Lies Brett Kavanaugh Told, and it just goes through them. He, under oath, repeatedly, he said... Dr. Ford's allegation is not merely uncorroborated. It is refuted by the very people she says were there, including a longtime friend of hers. That's his actual exact testimony. But the reality is none of those people who are at the party, Mark Judge, Leland Kaiser, P.J. Smith, none of them ever refuted anything. They simply have all said, I don't remember. He says he was never at a gathering like the one that Blasey Ford described. But on his calendar on that very day, July 1st, so he gathered for brewskies with two of the three people, Blasey said she remembers being there, small gathering, beer, judge, Brett, PJ, check, check, check. So he lied about that under oath. He lied about his knowledge of Christine Blasey Ford. He said, we did not travel in the same social circles. Excuse me. He was going to this party with Squee on July 1st, 82, and Squee was dating Blasey Ford. He says, I did not drink beer to the point of blacking out. Well, his friend, Dr. Liz Swisher says, Brett was a sloppy drunk, and I know because I drank with him. He'd end up slurring his words, stumbling. Well, that's something that's commonly associated with blackout drinking. It's like the media or whatever. Some of these people don't understand what blackout drinking is. Blackout drinking doesn't mean you fall over unconscious, which is how Kavanaugh kept referring to it in the testimony. Blackout drinking means you stop remembering what happened, but you keep doing it. Right. You're still having conversations with people. You're still doing things. And when you wake up the next morning, you have no recollection of having done it. And he talks about being a blackout drunk several times. He said another lie. The drinking age was 18 in Maryland. No, it was 21. He lied about the meaning of boof and devil's triangle. He lied about Renate alumnus. He lied about having no connections to Yale. In fact, he was a legacy student. His grandfather went there. He didn't get there by working my tail off. 25% of the students at Yale are legacy students. They get in because one of their parents or grandparents went to Yale. He said, nobody accused me of sexual misconduct until last week. No, it was back in July. He said, Mark Judge's memoir was fictionalized. No, Judge says this book is based on actual experiences. And don't get me started on Judge Alex Kaczynski. Actually, I will start on it. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. I'm Just finishing up the Brett Kavanaugh lies. Uh, Judge Alex Kaczynski was a mentor to Brett Kavanaugh. He clerked for him in 91 and 92. Kaczynski was first accused of sadistic and abusive behavior toward women in 1985. Reports about his harassment of female clerks, this is before Kavanaugh started working for him. Reports of his harassment of female clerks and his maintenance of a website hosting porn came out in 2008. Kaczynski was also known to send to a listserv wildly inappropriate content that demeaned women. He was admonished in 2009, stepped down as chief judge of the Ninth Circuit in 2014, And yet Kavanaugh appeared with him at a Federalist Society event in 2015 after he had stepped down because of his sexual misconduct. And of course Kavanaugh lied about that. He lied about his involvement with the William Pryor nomination. He said, quote, I was not involved in handling this nomination. Then we see an email where Kyle Sampson, a Justice Department staffer says, how'd the Pryor interview go? Call me. And you know, other emails. He lied about his involvement with the Judge Charles Pickering senior nomination. He lied about his involvement with warrantless wiretapping in the Bush administration. In fact, John Yu corresponded with him about this. He sent a letter to John Yu, who was then the Office of Legal Counsel, saying, Any results yet on the Fourth Amendment implications of random, constant surveillance of phone and email conversations? Really? In 2003, he got stolen documents from a mole. He was in the Bush White House. I don't know who the staffer was, but the staffer passed him this information. And he lied about Donald Trump. He said no president has conducted a more thorough examination in history. It was a lie. Just a flat-out, blatant lie. So a lot of thoughts and a lot of, well, we'll see what you have to say. Okay, let's pick up some phone calls here. Mike in Los Angeles, listening on KPFK. Hey, Mike, what's on your mind today?
0: Hi, Tom. Yeah, I just wanted to throw a little cold water on that uh, hope that was raised about Kavanaugh being prosecuted for attempted rape. Now, the right wing has been putting out a fictitious argument that since the statute of limitations had been eliminated, that Dr. Blasey Ford could have produced a prosecution. However, the fact is that the controlling law is what was in place at the time in 1982, right. and she would have had to file a complaint When she was 16 years
1: old, to avoid the statute of limitations. Correct me if I'm wrong, I believe this is the result of the constitutional prohibition on ex post facto laws. In other words, if in 82, say the statute of limitations was one year, and somebody committed a crime in 81, and in 82, the government said, we're going to blow up the statute of limitations, no more statute of limitations. But one year later, when the statute of limitations would have run out, that person comes forward and says, you know, okay, I had this crime committed against me, and the statute of limitations is gone. But the statute of limitations wasn't gone when the crime was committed. So you, That's correct. So you and can't reach
0: back. ex fact, exposed factor was applied to the states under the 14th Amendment as individual rights started to be applied to the states after the Civil
1: War. Right. I've just been figuring that out in the last day or so, because I've seen a couple of articles that point out that... This whole Republican thing about well, why didn't she come forward? Why, why, you know, why isn't he prosecuted? Why doesn't she file a complaint in Maryland right now? You know, she must not really have a credible allegation. If she, you know, and it turns out she can't, or she can. No, actually, she could, couldn't she? Not and have it stick.
0: I mean, he's sailing clear. After the one year from the date of the occurrence, the statute kicked in, and we couldn't retrospectively make it apply. Because that's the principle of ex post facto. You can't right. go back in time and make something, right. you know. Yeah, although it wasn't one year, whatever. I mean, I just pulled that out, but whatever the period of time was. Yeah, that's what it was in '82. And in fact, uh, attempted rape was only a misdemeanor.
1: Really? Yeah. Wow. Wow. Okay. Well, thanks for the thanks for the insight. Mike, do you see, I'm guessing you have some knowledge of the law, what about disbarring him? I mean, people are talking about he's violated the D.C. Barr's Code of Judicial Conduct. Well,
0: didn't they do that to President Clinton? Yes, they did. They did disbar him for a year. You're right. And I would think impeachment would be easily down the alley of possibilities. Yeah. What oppresses me about this whole business is the way that you ever heard of the castilian dialect in spain and how it got
1: changed by a king's speech defect yes i have in fact i've talked about it on this show
0: yeah so i think well, it's the
1: same with the entire french language by the way
0: <laughs> the same thing's happening with trump and the gutter snipe uh, approach to politics that's happening now when you have lindsey graham having the vapors and right. melting down and it's, it's like he's directing the thing uh, yeah. as i see it and imposing his own standards on
1: a civic discourse i agree i think you know trump is driving this yes and it's it's changing the nature of politics in america not for the better thank you mike for the call it's great to hear from you Blindsgalore.com was the first place you could buy custom window treatments online and because of that they know what they're doing they've been doing this for over 20 years and have covered over 2 million windows and know exactly how to get you the right blinds at the right price they make it easy they made it easy for louise and me to go in and order and it was a breeze it will be for you too Blinds Galore's products are hand-built from scratch, delivered right to your door and created just for your windows. Their expert team is happy to help you every step of the way, either online or over the phone. Plus, they have the industry's best guarantee. If you don't like your custom blinds or shades for any reason, wrong color, you measured wrong, you don't like the style, you can exchange it for another covering for free. Blinds Galore will even set you up with 15 free samples and free shipping on top of the free expertise it doesn't get any better than that blinds galore makes it easy to get the custom blinds and shades you've always wanted in your home go check out blindsgalore.com and let them know we sent you that's blindsgalore.com on the line with us jack brian jack is the director and co-writer of a new documentary it's called active measures a conspiracy hiding in plain sight the website is activemeasures.com the Twitter handle is uh... Jack, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me on. It's great to be here. I am I'm very, very happy to have you with us. I saw you on uh, Bill Maher, and I, it just blew my mind. First of all, the the, the backstory here: you, you, Russia has been involving itself in our politics since back when it was the Soviet Union.
3: Absolutely. Uh, since the 1930s, they've been trying to not only involve themselves in politics but get agents of theirs in high ranking uh, places within the US government. Uh, And they have continued at it for a long time and they've redoubled their efforts recently and social media has made it much, much easier on them. But the playbook itself goes back to the 1930s and you could argue before that even.
1: Yeah. Now they would argue that we're doing the same thing. Is there, are there any international standards or norms for this? Is this, you know, and that other, other countries are constantly messing in each other's internal politics? What, what historically has been done about that kind of thing?
3: Norm, There are certainly international norms for espionage. For example, with the Chinese, we understand that they look at our stuff and they look at their stuff. We look at their stuff. There's some complications, though, for example, with them stealing intellectual property, which is sort of a new thing. It kind of falls outside of those norms. So that's the place where we are constantly dealing with these norms with, with the Chinese. But with the Russians, it's an entirely different game. Mm-hmm. Uh, they really don't acknowledge any norms. Uh, and, and certainly, it, it is a good thing to remember that the U.S. absolutely was doing these things in the 70s and 80s. Our, our lack of access to social media, obviously, made it much more difficult for us to do it than the way that they do it now. Uh, and I, I think that we don't do it anymore, certainly not to the significance uh, of the level the Russians are doing it, and in large part because our government is so spread out and theirs is a the power vertical.
1: We had uh, Kathleen Hall Jamison on the program last week. She wrote a book called Cyber War that just comes right out and asserts that. Had it not been for the Russian uh, influence in the election, um, and, and, and at a variety of levels, and, there, and, the, and the level of uh, the, the possibility of, of affecting electronic voting systems and registration systems is still extremely unknown. But just you know, at the level of dumping data into Facebook and, and things like that, um, that without Russian involvement, Donald Trump would not be president. Period. Full stop. One hundred percent. Okay. Yeah, I agree with this. So you can point for to Comey idea, and other I, things, but go ahead I'm sorry well
3: yeah I, mean, I think sorry, I think that in an election that was decided by 75,000 votes you could find 10 or 15 factors that were a hundred percent decisive the Russians were a major one
4: yeah
3: uh, and it wasn't it wasn't just that they were putting things out there is that they were synchronizing these things with the campaign and so when people are seeing things on their Facebook feed and then only hearing one candidate saying those things it creates the illusion that that candidate is the only person speaking the truth for example and. Oh, for example, uh, well, just the easiest example is Hillary Clinton's a criminal. That if you that there were other presidential candidates that were saying that outright, but when you have a lot of that being pushed on social media, when, then when you have the candidate alluding to that, uh, it connects in the in the viewer's mind. If you're seeing on your Facebook feed all day this information, it sticks or becomes a, a, a reasonable option at the very least. Whereas without that, if Donald Trump had been saying a lot of these things in a vacuum, but they weren't being mirrored on social media, they would have sounded just crazy to everybody. Yeah. But it was that mirroring effect that really made it so convincing to a large portion of the population.
1: I, I've been asking this question, I ask it of, of Kathleen and and, uh, and of my listeners. I, and I've been asking this question for, for uh, weeks, maybe a month or so now, since this has become more and more uh, essentially irrefutable. What If we conclude, if we can conclude, and, and you have, and, and Kathleen Jameson has, and others have, that Donald Trump is president, Mike Pence is vice president, many of the members of the House and Senate only hold their seats because of the coattails of those two. Um, The two people being appointed to the Supreme Court, Gorsuch and now Kavanaugh, that all of this was the consequence of Russian interference in our election. If If we assume that that's true, what do we do with that? Well, I think that that's a really
3: good question. I think that it's, listen, from my point of view, all of this is going to come out. All of the repercussions of this are the most likely things that's going to happen. So I think it's a really good question, because I think we have to look at this with seriousness. You know, it it is not a positive thing, just generally speaking, for a country for their president to go to prison. But if, it's, if that's one option, and the other option is that China, India, and Russia are going to say, well, now we can't afford to not involve ourselves in every American presidential election, then that bad option is the best option you have. So I, I think the most likely scenario is this has to be dealt really seriously in a really legal way, because otherwise it's open season. Uh, and I, think, but I also think we have to acknowledge that that's not a good thing. You know, this is not what we want as a nation, is to be, you know, having our leaders be charged with crimes. But in a rule of law nation, you have to do those things. Or having if our leaders picked by,
1: by other countries' governments. Uh, you know, yeah, we, sure. we have... Even worse. And, and there's different different levels of this. I mean, in the Citizens United dissent, Justice John Paul Stevens uh, pointed out that under the, under the logic of Citizens United, Tokyo Rose would have been afforded First Amendment protection to broadcast directly into the United States, her propaganda during World War II and yeah. and uh, there's like if you look at the spectrum of foreign governments trying to influence u.s elections you had you know saudi arabia and saudi aramco through largely through the business community influencing american politics and decisions for decades you have uh, israel principally through aipac uh, you know influencing politics on a regular basis in the united states supporting candidates and things like that um i'm, I'm sure that the list of countries that you know, explicitly, overtly, we all know about influence our elections. Is you know, it's got to run to ten to fifteen countries. Um, what what can we learn? You know, if we don't have a, cl- you know, you're talking about sending Trump to jail. I'm, i I think that's pretty unlikely. But who knows? But you know, if that or impeachment are the solutions to this, which just gets us Pence. Um, although maybe we could impeach both. Is there is there some call to action that is like, OK, let's pass laws or, you know, I mean, like like, you know, Stevens pointing out the Citizens United just ripped open this door for any foreign country to come in and do whatever they want in the United States legally. Um, is there any way is there and to, the, and to the best of your knowledge, are there any attempts by legislators to to change our laws? Yeah, so I, I think
3: that that's a, again a great question. Uh, I, I think that there's there's really two approaches that you could have to that, and you can't really just uh, address Citizens United directly because what Citizens United does is it upholds the 76 Supreme Court case Buckley vallejo uh... So you'd have to actually go further back and overturn
1: Buckley Vallejo. Oh, and I'd be uh, I'd be at the top of the list for that. That was Louis Powell's uh, thing. That was the yeah. first step in the Powell memo. 100%. So I, I, I'm I'm all for that. I think there's an
3: easier way though. And I think that there's a way that you don't have to go to the Constitution, and this is just sort of a personal idea of mine. I've not heard anybody suggest this, but that you uh, tax political spending at a 99% rate and uh, do it as a sales tax so that hmm. it gets passed on to the person spending it. Uh, and you would drive massive, I mean, or you could say any contribution over $5,000. Because one thing that's not ever questioned is the government's ability to tax. I mean, the entire entire purpose of the Philadelphia Convention was so that they could level, levy taxes. Right. But
1: um, well, wouldn't they, wouldn't a starting point is. be to just end the deductibility of political contributions, or are they or are they I not deductible? That, I I you know I've never tried to. I, I
3: I don't know, but I don't think I think that if they I first I don't think they are, but okay. if, if they were, you would do some amount to to curb yeah, it. But yeah. you could tax it at the highest rate you want to. You know? Sure. Uh, and and at that point, if you wanted taxing gets 99
1: percent, you can get rid of it. That's a fascinating idea. The um, a, a, a comment that I believe I heard you make on Bill Maher's show was about uh, Trump and Putin uh, sitting down when they met in Helsinki, uh, basically that this was a second Yalta, the, the meeting between Roosevelt and Stalin and, and Churchill, uh, where they carved up the world. I mean, uh, particularly North Africa and the Middle East. Uh, can you riff on that for a minute?
3: Well, I, I think that one of the difference there is that I think that uh, when when Roosevelt and Stalin uh, met in Yalta, I think that there was uh, a little bit more of a, a, as equals, but one of the interesting things is is that Stalin was unbeknownst to Roosevelt during that conference, bugging him. Hmm. Uh, and so I think that 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 is perhaps an analogy. I, I don't know if I would necessarily compare it to Yalta because I, I think that um, my, my strong suspicion is is that at this point, uh, Putin has so much over Trump that there's not an evenly held hand in any capacity. Yeah. Um, that that, the, that the, sort of the seeds of the Cold War were kind of percolating under the surface uh, within Yalta in a way that I don't think that Trump can afford to to push. Yeah. Um, and also, the regime there was, yeah. you know, it was uh, I mean, but, uh, but so I, I and, and I think at this point that Trump is especially, once he won, he became even more uh, compromised. Because the real leverage that Putin has now is his knowledge of Trump's involvement in 2016.
1: Right. And, and, there are, and we have about a, a minute and a half here until we're going to hit a hard break. My apologies. But uh, we're talking about Jack Bryan, uh, G- G- Active Measures is the movie. There are two kind of competing narratives about that. One is that Trump has been basically a Russian asset, uh, you know, that he's being blackmailed, essentially, uh, or owned. And the other is that Trump is just a businessman eager to ha- build a Trump Tower in Moscow. And that's why he's trying to keep this relationship open. What are your thoughts? What, is your, what does your uh, research think- tell you?
3: I think those are not mutually exclusive. I mean I mean our research is that this goes back to the eighties and like any relationship it developed slowly uh and for very practical reasons over time. Uh I, I think that this is more a re- a relationship that began as sort of this is a sketchy guy who is comfortable laundering our money in the eighties than in you know, throughout the nineties and two thousands a guy who was his business was falling apart and he needed the Russians. And then it became, after ten years of that, just a, a relationship work that was mutually serving. Um, and so, I, I don't think that it, I don't think anybody came in a room and said, "Hey, we're going to blackmail you now." I think that they allowed him to know that their good friends were going to sit on this information so long as he was a good friend, kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, and so, I think it was an all of the above approach. I, I don't think that you need one of these threads and. Frankly, there's evidence for all of these. So I I think that the evidence shows and it would make sense that this was all of the above as opposed to just one threat.
1: Is there another? I I mentioned two scenarios. Is there a third or a fourth?
3: Yeah, I think the third and the most likely, I think, is that the Russian mafia, which is a branch of the Russian government, has had a huge position within the Trump organization since at least 2004. Hmm. Uh, And that this open that they're the reason that he got out of debt. They're the reason he has a, a business. We sort of detail this throughout the film. Uh, And I think that that knowing that is important and knowing the backstory of how far back this goes is important because, you know, when the Mueller reports come out, people need a context for understanding. it, And that was the real
1: reason we did the film. Yeah. Fascinating. The movie is Active Measures, the documentary, a conspiracy hiding in plain sight. ActiveMeasures.com is the website. Jack Bryan is the director and co-writer. Thank you, Jack. Thank you so much. Tom Harwin University Book Club. Today we're reading from... The Fight for the Four Freedoms, What Made FDR and the Greatest Generation Truly really Great, by Professor Harvey J. Kay, who's a professor of Democracy and Justice Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. This is from the introduction, page one. We need to remember. We need to remember what conservatives have never wanted us to remember and what liberals have all too often forgotten. Now, after more than 30 years of subordinating the public good to corporate priorities and private greed, of subjecting ourselves to widening inequality and intensifying insecurities, and of denying our democratic impulses and yearnings, we need to remember. We need to remember who we are. We need to remember that we are the children and grandchildren of the men and women who rescued the United States from the economic destruction of the Great Depression and defended it against fascism and imperialism in the Second World War. We need to remember that we are the children and grandchildren of the men and women who not only saved the nation from economic ruin and political oblivion but also turned it into the strongest and most prosperous country on earth and most of all we need to remember that we are the children and grandchildren of the men and women who accomplished all that in the face of powerful conservative reactionary and corporate opposition and despite all their own faults and failings by making america freer more equal and more democratic than ever before now when all they fought for is under siege, and we too find ourselves confronting crises and forces that threaten the nation and all that it stands for, now we need to remember that we are the children and grandchildren of the most progressive generation in American history. We are the children of the men and women who articulated, fought for, and endowed us with the promise of the four freedom. On the afternoon of January 6, 1941, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt went up to Capitol Hill to deliver his annual message to Congress. This week's earlier, he had defeated the Republican Wendell Wilkie at the polls and won re-election to an unprecedented third term, one even more daunting than those he confronted in his first and second terms. Still stalked by the Great Depression, the United States was also increasingly threatened by the Axis power, Nazi Germany, Fascist Italy, Imperial Japan. And with war already raging east and west, Americans had yet to agree about how to respond to the danger. The president, however, did not falter he not only proceeded to propose measures to address the emergency he gave dramatic new meaning to all men are created equal life liberty and the pursuit of happiness we the people of the united states a new birth of freedom and government of the people by the people and for the people fdr knew about crises but he knew as well what americans could accomplish even in the darkest of times Born in 1882, he had grown up privileged, the son of New York Hudson River Gentry. Yet long before becoming president, he had suffered serious defeats and setbacks, none more devastating than contracting polio in 1921 at the age of 39. The disease left him permanently unable to stand up or walk without assistance. However, supported by his wife Eleanor and other family members and friends, he had risen above the paralysis to become the most dynamic political figure in the United States. Moreover, his experiences and encounters in the course of doing so had reaffirmed and deepened his already powerful faith and confidence in God, in himself, and in his fellow citizens, all of which had enabled him, in the face of the worst economic and social catastrophe in the nation's history, to defiantly state that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself, and then go on to proclaim this generation of Americans has a rendezvous with destiny. Armed with this faith and confidence and propelled by the popular energies that his words and elections elicited, he determinedly pursued the initiatives of relief, recovery, reconstruction, and reform known as the New Deal. Together, President and people severely tested each other, made mistakes and regrettable compromises, and suffered defeats and disappointments. Nevertheless, challenging each other to live up to their finest ideals, Roosevelt and his fellow citizens advanced them further than either had expected or even imagined possible confronting fierce conservative reactionary and corporate opposition they not only rejected authoritarianism but also redeemed the nation's historic purpose and promise by initiating revolutionary changes in american government and public life and radically extending american freedom equality and democracy they subjected big business to public account and regulation empowered the federal government to address the needs of working people mobilized and organized labor unions Fought for their rights, broadened and leveled the "we" and "we the people," established a social security system, expanded the nation's public infrastructure, improved the environment, cultivated the arts, and refashioned popular culture. And while much remained to be done, imbued themselves with fresh democratic convictions, hopes, and aspirations. Standing before the American people and their assembled representatives that early January day, the president surely believed. Their rendezvous with destiny had come. He told them straightforwardly that Americans were now confronting a moment unprecedented in the history of the United States, a moment unprecedented because never before had American security been as seriously threatened from without, and he refused to appease those who threatened our nation's safety. The book is "The Fight for the Four Freedoms" by Harvey. Hi,
3: I'm Randy, and this is Dave. We're the founders of Bombas, makers of the most comfortable socks in the history of feet. So comfortable, we've sold and donated over 8 million pairs. Yes, donated. Why? We learned that socks are the number one most requested clothing item at homeless shelters. So we started Bombas with the mission of donating a pair of socks for every pair we sell. To donate and sell a lot of socks, we became obsessed with comfort. We reinvented the sock from the ground up using the best materials available, like the softest and most comfortable cotton, getting rid of what wasn't working, like that annoying toe seam you can probably feel if you wiggle your toes right now, and inventing a few new comfort innovations along the way, like arch support that feels like a hug around your midfoot. It worked. People tried them, loved them, told their friends about them. Helping us sell and donate over 8 million pairs.
1: Try them now at bombus.com slash Tom and get 20% off your first order. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash T-H-O-M.
0: slash Tom.
1: Tom Harbin here with you and uh, on the line with us is Lori Wallach. Laurie is the executive director of public citizens global trade watch TradeWatch.org is the website or citizen.org slash trade. Laurie, welcome back to the program. Thank you very much. It's always great talking with you. So Trump was on TV saying that he's got a new deal that replaces NAFTA and it's the best thing since sliced bread. The old deal was a terrible deal and we're not going to call this NAFTA anymore. Bloody, bloody, blah. What's your take on this?
5: So, the New Deal has some improvements we've long advocated for. Uh-huh. Some terms we have long opposed, including some recycled from the Trans Pacific Partnership. And the bottom line is that a lot more work is required to stop NAFTA's ongoing job outsourcing, downward pressure on wages and environmental damage, and the jury's kinda out. Mm -hmm. if the final package is going to get us there. There are two big questions. Number one is the text that got released what's actually going to end up in front of Congress next year, Mm -hmm. what would happen next year, and depending on what happens in the elections, who knows. And then number two, what's going to be in the full package? What's going to be in the implementing legislation, for instance? The unions are working right now to try and get in the implementing bill language that could make some somewhat improved labor standards actually enforceable, which right now they're not sufficiently. Mm
1: -hmm. What about pharmaceuticals? I read this bill, and maybe this is what was borrowed from TPP, that it extends the patents for these pharmaceuticals in ways that will permanently keep our prices high and also raise prices for pharmaceuticals in Canada and maybe Mexico.
5: Yep, that's one of the things we have long opposed, and it's really outrageous big-time, big pharma giveaways, and here we are in a free trade agreement, and right in the heart of it are these protectionist monopolies for pharmaceutical firms to avoid competition and have the ability to charge crazy high prices on these cutting-edge called biologic drug, large-molecule drug medicines. And, you know, it's, it's things like Humira, and mm-hmm. it's, it's medicines that used to treat cancer. And the bottom line is provisions like that, which could lock in the U.S. from making important reforms in the future and would definitely raise prices in Mexico and Canada. That stuff just
4: has to go.
1: It seems to me that what's going on here, Lori, and reality check this for me, please, is that. Donald Trump on the campaign trail identifies a real problem. NAFTA has caused over a million jobs to be lost in the United States that the government acknowledges. And most people are of the opinion that it's probably six, eight, ten million jobs are lost as a result of NAFTA. Whatever it may be, it's huge, number one. So he says, I'm going to do something about this. So everybody goes, yeah, great, you know, let's elect this guy. And I think that that really helped him in Michigan, Pennsylvania, Ohio, et cetera, Wisconsin. And then he takes this terrible deal, and tweaks it a little bit, gets rid of some of the really obscenely objectionable stuff, but then adds in a bunch of goodies for his buddies who are supporting his campaign and giving him money. And at the end of the day, it's pretty much a wash. It's really not going to bring jobs back. It's really not going to solve the big problems that we're confronting. But he gets to declare victory, and for the rubes who watch Fox News, they're all going to think he actually did what he campaigned on. Am I being too cynical, or is that an accurate analysis?
5: That may be where we are when the thing comes to Congress next year. I think it's worth reserving judgment for two really important reasons. The one that's the outstanding issue. So there are some serious changes in this agreement. I think it's an exact description of Trump and what he's up to. But it's also the case that his top trade guy, the U.S. trade representative, a guy named Robert Lighthizer, and he's a serious guy. Right. And he has opposed NAFTA and investor state tribunals and job outsourcing. He's super smart. And he's the guy who's been running the show on this. Yep. So he actually has made some real changes that are worth harvesting, that yep. are important, that could make a difference. So the investor state dispute settlement system, those outrageous corporate
4: Courts, rights
5: yeah. and tribunals are whacked way, way, way back the corporate lobbies and hysterics about this. The investor incentives that basically subsidize job outsourcing, the protections that made it less risky and cheaper, Mm -hmm. those got whacked. That's that's real stuff. That's like transformational stuff, actually. However, apropos of your point about some of the corporate buddies, they left a little opening, a loophole into which some oil and gas companies can try and wangle their way back into investor state. So it's like a, you know, 90% solution on a very big problem. Then they wrote some decent labor standards, including this fairly dramatic annex that for the first time would require that workers in Mexico get secret ballot elections on their union contracts. Right now, there's like a whole racket where these companies basically get paid by the boss to register a union. They are themselves, you know, written down as a union, but it's a business and the constitution in Mexico requires a union to be registered, so these guys come in before the first workers hire when the plant's being built. They negotiate a contract, they register it, and the workers come in to a brand new fancy multi million dollar plant and being paid a buck fifty an hour, they go on strike. This just happened at a Goodyear plant in Mexico, in San Luis Potosí. Hmm. And the guys down there are getting paid buck fifty-eight an hour. The guys in Kansas City making the same tire for the same auto companies are getting paid $25, $28 an hour. The guys down there, and also the working conditions are super unsafe. They go on strike. Hmm. And they get fired. They get beaten up. They get sent to jail. And they're informed, oh, you have a contract. You have a union. You're violating it.
4: Right. Of course,
5: they've never voted for any of that crap. So there's an annex. That would get rid of that. It requires all those fake protection unions must be replaced in four years,
4: Mm -hmm.
5: and that Mexico must provide secret ballot elections for contracts going forward. Now, if that could actually be made sufficiently enforceable, that could make a big difference for people's lives in Mexico, and that would help stop the drag of Mexico's very low wages. I mean, Tom, Mexico's wages now, manufacturing wages, are 40% below coastal China. They're down in real terms since NAFTA.
4: Whoa. So
5: this is the only reason I don't say, you know, I had a hell with is It's is because this guy Bob Lighthizer made some real changes on some real important things. And if they can follow through and actually make those labor changes enforceable, and the loophole for the oil and gas companies is removed from the investor state, otherwise whacking away of those outrageous tribunals, I think it could make a difference in stopping new corporate attacks after almost $400 million have been paid out in the first 25 years of NAFTA and attacks on water, timber, toxics, you name it, energy policies. And then if we could really see the enforcement of that new labor annex, as well as some other decent rules that are, that are real changes, mm-hmm. it might help Slow the job outsourcing, it might raise wages in North America, and it certainly could shut down a bunch of those corporate attacks. And we won't know if all of that or any of that is possible, Mm -hmm. unless we keep fighting, because we're going to need members of Congress to pressure the administration. The president thinks it's all
1: done. Laurie, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you. Good talking with you. Take one atom of nitrogen and bond it with one atom of oxygen, and boom, you just created nitric oxide, a miracle molecule your own body makes that fuels your cardiovascular health, keeping you vibrant. But as we all age, our bodies need help generating more natural nitric oxide. Superbeets by Human N has harnessed the power of nutrient-enriched beets and created a superfood that helps your body make more nitric oxide on its own. The core philosophy of Human N is to develop heart-healthy products for your body. One teaspoon of Super Beets daily supports your cardiovascular health and blood pressure levels, giving you natural energy without the need of a quick caffeine kick or sugar high. We're talking real. We're talking healthy, natural energy. Call 800-568-9889 or go to tomsbeats.com and find out how you can get a free 30-day supply of Super Beats and free shipping with your first purchase. Feel the 1 plus 1 equals boom effect of Superbeats. Call 800-568-9889 or go to tomsbeats.com today. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Congressman Mark Pocan is on the line with us. What are your thoughts about what's going on in the political world around us right now?
2: Phil Kavanaugh is what dominates most of the conversation right now, the Saturday night live rendition of it uh seems to dominate a lot of conversation too, but um we now know uh, Brett Kavanaugh likes beer
1: boy does he <laughs> uh, like beer
2: yeah, boy, I tell you you know it was a bizarre day, and I you know that happened after our last call last week. I sat there and watched her give her testimony very, very credibly, and I Dr. watched a few questions yeah, Dr. Yeah. Ford, and then later, I caught some of the, the Brett Kavanaugh and it just. you know, she should be confirmed to the Supreme Court. I mean, she had temperament, she had everything you'd want in a judge, and then, you know, here this guy comes across and pulls an odd rendition of Donald Trump and uh, lets everyone know how much he likes beer. It was just a really bizarre day, and then now we've got Republicans, again, still, um, you know, holding out against the Me Too movement and trusting, you know, they say they believe Dr. Ford, except it's not him. Well, that's not... Leaving Dr. Ford. So we'll see what happens um, this week. I mean, we're still watching to see whether or not they're going to try to force a vote this week, how wide the FBI investigation is. But I think there are a lot of um, moderate women who are watching this very closely and not very happy with the Republican response.
1: Yeah, although it's getting very, very aggressive. I even had a caller to the program in the last hour say, so. Well, you know, I'm looking at uh, Kavanaugh's grandfather's uh, college timeline, and he didn't go to Yale, you know, after I'd said that he had lied yeah. about, uh, uh, you know, he got in by his own hard work. And then somebody tweets, hey, you know, that caller was talking about his grandfather going to college in the 60s. Sorry, that was his father. Kavanaugh went to college in the 80s. Um, yeah. You know, and, and of course his father didn't go to Yale, but his grandfather did, so apparently he got in as a legacy student. But, you know, uh, apparently the BS is traveling really, really rapidly in the right wing circles. It's even leaking into this program. Marsha in inglewood florida you're on the air with congressman pokin
6: hi thanks tom and hi congressman good to talk to you again hi marcia um i have a question about um you know there you can count on one hand in five minutes how many times kavanaugh has literally lied that's perjury under oath that's the criminal sense and i'm i'm trying to figure out why the democratic party doesn't bring criminal charges against him in state court are they not allowed to bring charges against him in state court or why aren't they doing anything about the perjury
1: yeah and i would add bill clinton was con was uh impeached for perjury and was disbarred he lost his law license for perjury
2: Got yeah and, his- and some of this on the most recent you know perjuries around like you know, what the yearbook said and things. I, you know, people would argue whether or not they're material, they're strong enough that you could get to that level. I would argue what people have kind of forgot about um, because of the very serious allegations by Dr. Ford uh, that we're forgetting that he probably committed perjury four or maybe five times. In some previous testimony, that uh, actually I think is more substantial, right? That he mm. lied me previously when he was before the Senate for confirmation, according to Senator, uh, former Senator Russ Feingold from Wisconsin. So um, I, I think what people have been saying, and I think this is probably the most relevant to offer, Marsha, is that, you know, um, we're going to do everything we can to stop this nomination for a lot of very valid reasons, but should he get through, and should we win the majority, we can do hearings on this, and we can really get to the bottom of this. And, you know, there is a process to impeach. I'm not saying it's easy, but uh, we can certainly uh, do things that we need to if they decide to force this vote.
1: Yeah, and uh, it's, it's a very interesting time to be in the middle of this political swirl. You can find Congressman Pocan's website at pocan.house.gov. You can tweet him at rep, as in representative, rep Mark Pocan. We'll be right back. Alan in Pinsburg, Pennsylvania. You're on the air with Congressman Pokin Yes, Congressman. Thank you
0: for taking my call. My question is: Do you think there should be term limits on Supreme Court justices?
2: Good question, Alan. I honestly have never been asked that or thought about that as a question. So um,
1: I'm proposing yeah, 18 was, years. 18 years. Yeah, yeah and, I mean, and then and 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 schedule it in the way they did with the Senate when they went to you know uh, every two years, and so that every uh, uh, over that period of time this so that every president will have an opportunity to appoint a couple of yeah. supreme court justices i 'd also expand the size of the court to thirteen
2: I, I was going to say that's the other question that comes up probably a little more often, uh, which is you know should we have a larger supreme court um, you know because because of some of the difficulties we 're facing right now with the appointment process and just the the court itself so yeah. uh yeah, I mean, those are all possibilities, but I, Alan, let me think about it a little more. I'm not sure. Um, Tom, if I can, two people have uh, tweeted things, if I can, just, because I want people to know I do read when they're sure. tweeting while we're watching the show. Um, the woman who asked about uh, the slander, I, I, I brought the question to impeachment response. She said... But you didn't really answer the question about perjury. Um, Could you still go back after someone from the first FBI investigation with perjury charges? I'm assuming you could, Marsha. I'm sorry I didn't get it to directly. I was kind of going to where a lot of the conversation is that um, likely if he gets appointed Friday, which they seem to be pushing really quickly, the way to remove him uh, would be an impeachment process as opposed to, you know, perjury charges, which could lead to maybe an impeachment process. And the second one, Tom, is just—it's its kind of a funny one, but I thought it was good when we were talking about the impeach Kavanaugh. They said a new slogan for 2019: If necessary, impeach Kavanaugh. It's good practice, and I just thought that was <laughs> pretty funny. So,
1: <laughs> <laughs> that is a good one
2: yesterday we saw a nafta you know redo introduced we're still trying to figure it all out but uh you yeah, know yeah. there's a lot of other things happening but this is what's getting that he's idea. just
1: rebranding that's what he does he, yeah. he he you know somebody has an office building and he goes to them and he says hey give me five percent or ten percent and you can put the trump name on it well that's exactly yeah. what he just yeah. did with nafta and and also you know one of the big bragging points is they got rid of the investor state uh, dispute resolution tribunals turns out at least if nbc news was correct this morning when canada said yeah we'll participate they one of the conditions of their participation was that those tribunals come back into the deal so yeah, and
2: there's a whole the button by american provision stuff is not clear at all what was yeah. in there
1: yet we don't yeah, know it that, looks so. like that got blown up
2: Yeah, so it's pretty early to to do real any
7: real assessments other than you know the things we pointed out are still pretty faulty
1: yeah russ in portland oregon you're on the air with congressman Pocan.
7: Yeah, Cosmococan, I was just wondering if you had heard about the 1985 drunken bar brawl in New Haven where uh, Brett Kavanaugh started it by throwing ice, at another bar patron, got into a fight, and then none other than Chris Dudley, uh, the uh, guy who ran for governor here in Oregon uh, several years ago and almost, not quite, but almost beat our uh, legendary Democratic governor, John Kitzhaber, Dudley picked up a broken, he broke a, a, a bar glass and thrust the broken bar glass into the side of the head of the, uh, of Brett's, uh adversary, and there was blood all over the place, the cops were called, there was a police report, and this, this kind of drunken behavior flies in the face, in my opinion, of what he told the Senate Judiciary Committee about his, uh, he really didn't have any problem with alcohol, I think he perjured himself when he, when he said that, and, uh, Anyway, uh Russ
2: yeah, what do you Russ, I,
7: I did I did hear that story.
2: I do concur. I mean there's been so many of his roommates and, and, and others who've said Uh, Very different story, so it does appear that he wasn't truthful uh, with the Senate. But, you know, something else you bring up that really stood out to me was, you know, this is a guy who um, shows uh, extraordinary privilege and was shocked that anyone would say no to him or question him. And his aggressive, belligerent behavior based on that, uh, again, just reinforced um, his privileged status that he thinks he's owed and so he's somehow he's entitled to the seat rather than this is a job interview for the seat and i just i also found that to be pretty extraordinary
1: monty in los osos california You're on the air with congressman pocan
0: thank you first time long time and i wanted to ask the congressman is there any way that we can put this judge appointment off until the next election the way the republicans did to mr garland
2: um, by the rules, they're going by no. Uh, that's the problem. If they have uh, Jeff Flake or Susan Collins or Lisa Murkowski, uh, no. They'll have the votes lined up. The question is, you know, is this going to be um, a thorough, real FBI investigation, which everyone's asked for, or is this going to be some kind of a abbreviated or more narrow one, which then didn't resolve the problem at all? Uh, we're, we're yet to find that out, and hopefully we will this
1: week. when we have about 30, 40 seconds here left. Uh, what should we be looking for this week?
2: Uh, you know, we uh, it's all about Kavanaugh as far as what you're looking for, I think. The other thing, maybe just to spend a little attention to watch is, you know, Rod Rosenstein was supposed to go to the, meet with the president last Thursday during the Kavanaugh hearing. That got delayed. But, you know, that's still out there. And at some point uh, that could be done while people are paying attention to the Kavanaugh hearing. So keep, pay attention to that as well, because um, that would certainly trigger response around the country.
1: Do you think Trump initially did that as a way of diverting attention from the Kavanaugh hearing, and then when he realized it, it wasn't possible, he gave up?
2: Potentially, but again, who knows? If this guy thought like normal people do, you could predict it's a little harder with him.
1: Yeah, there, that is true. Although I, I think we're starting to see some trends emerging. You know, the con artist and the the, the uh, media manipulator and everything else. Congressman, thanks so much for for doing this today, and good travels, and, and I hope you have great success on the road. Thank you very much, Tom. I appreciate it. Congressman Mark Pocan, check out his website at Pokan.house.gov and you can tweet him at Rep. Mark pokan The Tom Hartman University Book Club. We're reading from Walking Your Blues Away How to Heal the Mind and Create Emotional Well Being from Chapter One How Trauma Sticks and the Mechanism of PTSD. One of the enduring mysteries in the field of psychology is why the same event produces such different memories and responses in different people. Citing a report in the New England Journal of Medicine, the writer noted the researchers surveyed more than 6,000 soldiers in the month before and after service in Iraq and Afghanistan, almost 17 percent. Of those who fought in Iraq, reported symptoms of major depression, severe anxiety, or post-traumatic stress disorder, compared with 11% of the troops who served in Afghanistan. In World War II, post-war depression and anxiety was called battle fatigue. In World War I, we called it shell shock. The question isn't so much why it happens. We know GIs in war do and see horrific things. The question that perplexes us is why post-war anxiety and depression haunts some veterans and not others some vets see harder combat than others, but even that doesn't account for the statistics. There are still huge variations among individual soldiers and in how they respond to the same event. The same is true in the civilian world. Some people develop PTSD and others don't facing the exact same circumstances. In order to understand why some people are still shocked months and even years after a traumatic event, it's necessary to first understand how the brain and mind processes trauma. The brain is a complex collection of deeply interconnected parts and processes. I'm vastly oversimplifying here for the purpose of description. And in light of those caveats, here's a possible scenario that's not inconsistent with much of what's known about brain function. There's a part of the limbic brain, or visceral brain, called the hippocampus that's believed to function as a one day scratch pad for memory. Everything you experience throughout the day is stored in the hippocampus. In order for the impressions of the experience to become a long term memory, they must pass through the hippocampus into the rest of the brain. People with a damaged hippocampus remember past events but have extreme difficulty learning new things. Although the rest of the brain is able to integrate recent information from the hippocampus in relation to stored memories, in order to understand that one thing happened a week ago and another thing happened a month ago, the hippocampus knows only one time today. During the night as we sleep, the hippocampus dumps its information from the day into the rest of the brain for processing, sorting, storing, and disposing of irrelevant information. As the brain is processing the details of the day from the hippocampus, we experience what we call dreaming. Many sleep researchers are convinced that when we experience REM sleep, most of the events, including the traumas of our daily life, are processed. The processing of information management completed when we wake up in the morning, the hippocampus is once again empty and ready to record another day. The problem emerges when the hippocampus is carrying information that's too much or too hot for the larger brain slash mind to handle. When a recent memory is too strong to be easily and unremarkably processed, it presents in our dream world as a nightmare. If that still doesn't download the information from the hippocampus, then the trauma either becomes buried in the subconscious of process, Freud referred to as repression, or it gets thrown back into the hippocampus the next morning. It's as if the brain says, Whoa, that's too much for me to process in one evening. Please hang on to it for another day. When the person wakes up in the morning, the information is still there in the hippocampus, still remembered and known and felt as if it happened that same very day. The conjecture that the hippocampus knows little about the more distant past accounts for the unique feature of true PTSD that the person feels every day as if the past event happened today, or at least in the very recent past. The trauma is always front, center, new, fresh, and raw. The consequences can be psychologically and emotionally devastating. Every day is affected by a past event. The traumatic event never passes from now until then. And is never processed and filed away in the memory banks where it loses the power to cause pain and problems on a daily basis. The impact of this on the mind and the emotions is staggering. Brain scans even demonstrate that before a PTSD event has been processed, the amygdala, a part of the brain responsible for strong emotional states such as those that involved with survival or the perception of a threat to survival, and the hippocampus are not functioning normally. The brain scan makes it possible to, in a way, see the effect of the stuck memory. After processing the memory, these parts of the brain usually return to normal functioning. One of the key concepts of many schools of psychology is that human beings are most functional when every part of the mind has access to all other parts. In particular, this functionality is a matter of having full access to positive resources, such as memories of times when we were successful in our undertakings and the good feelings we associate with those accomplishments. Working from this level of functionality, then, When we take on a new task, for example, we first remember times in the past when we attempted something similar and accomplished our goals. This functionality can be accessed in all endeavors, from embarking on a new love relationship to making your first public speaking engagement. Memories of past accomplishments and capabilities are stored in parts of the brain far from the amygdala and the hippocampus. The amygdala and hippocampus, part of our brain's most primary and primitive structures, lie deep in the brain. Thus, having a negative memory stuck deep in the hippocampus blocks the pain and fear associated with that memory from reaching and associating with positive memories and resource states, which are housed in more distant parts of the brain. So, in other words, if we don't get these traumatic memories out of the hippocampus, then everything coming in gets filtered through that and blocked having access to resource states that can help and heal us. So, the rest of the book is how to get that stuff out of the hippocampus. The book is walking your blues away. Verity in Chicago.
6: Yes, I want to talk to you about the uh Kavanaugh hearings. Mm-hmm. Uh people say, well, the accusations are thirty six years old. We don't have any evidence. That is not true. We do have the evidence of the living brain and body of Kavanaugh himself. And the principle is this you don't get orange juice from apples. You get apple juice from apples. Parasitic and predatory brains. Produce parasitic and predatory behavior, and we have methods for detecting that now. Um, for example, the polygraph, it does not detect lies. What it does is detect your bodily changes in response to a set stimulus. Your body's reactions to those stimulus tell whether or not you are reacting to the stimulus in one way or another. Right. Or, and even more importantly, not reacting. Just as a case in point, you remember the Unabomber, Ted Kaczynski. Mm -hmm. He had a resting heart rate of 48 beats per minute. That is exceedingly low. Normal is between 60 and 7-ish. This physiological flag will tell you you're dealing with somebody who is capable of enormity. You're dealing with somebody who is capable of an empathetic, predatory, behavior. Well, there no, the resting told.
1: heartbeat rate does not vary. It, 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 what it tells you is the strength of the heart muscle. Somebody, also, I, uh, I, I, really no, I can tell you from disagree. personal experience, When we lived in Washington, D.C., every single day of the week, I climbed seven flights of really about eight flights of stairs because the first floor was two floors. And by the time I got to the seventh floor, I was just flat out exhausted, out of breath panting. When I started Mm -hmm. doing that, my resting heart rate was typically around 75. My resting heart rate now is between 59 and 62 as a result of seven years of climbing stairs every day. The thing that we'll tell you, Verity, is if Ted Kaczynski was hooked up to a lie detector machine and they asked him a question, you know, did you kill so or did you send the bomb off, and he said no, and he didn't see a change in his heart rate, Right. that's an indication that either he's innocent or he's a sociopath, exactly. and the challenge is separating those two, and exactly. I'm, I'm guessing that Brett Kavanaugh is probably not a sociopath, given how much emotion that we saw, and, uh, you know, I think he's a narcissist.
6: Oh, um, my dear Tom. Um, I would like to direct you to study narcissism, psychopathy, Machiavellianism, all of these are unempathetic, predatory diseases. I agree. And they can fake these things to manipulate people. This is the one skill that parasitic
1: predators have. Okay, well said. I I agree. Verity, thank you. Trump, I believe, is all three. Is Canada a narcissist? Is he a sociopath. What's going on with him? Anyhow, Kathleen uh, in Astoria, New York, watching us on Facebook Live. Hey, Kathleen, what's up? Hi. Hi.
6: I was listening to your conversation about telephones and all of that and wondering what you think about the president having access to every single individual's telephone number to send out a warning broadcast and why it would just be from him, that branch in particular. Right and
1: privacy concerns, a whole bunch of concerns came up. And my main concern around this is who's controlling this? And I may be wrong on this. I want to fact check myself. So please don't carve in stone what I'm saying here. But my understanding is that that nationwide broadcast alert is coming out of the Department of Homeland Security. And the Department of Homeland Security is essentially a police agency. Trump has branded it as, it'll be my tweet to the world. But it's really a DHS tweet, I believe, or text message, I guess, that goes to everybody.
6: Well, there were many people who criticized their alert system as sort of being manipulative. Well, and that's, that's, that's
1: where I'm going with this, is you know, because it's coming out of a police agency, police agencies are intrinsically political. You know, police agencies are typically what are used by petty tin-pot dictators to take over countries. Police agencies, and, you know, we, we see this right now in the United States. If the goal is to have a national alert system to say, Okay, you know we've had a, uh, you know there was another 9/11. There's a terrorist incident going on, or uh, you know, or there's you know 30 terrorists on the loose around the country, or or there's a giant earthquake hitting California and it might start spreading around the country. You know, it's it's hard to think of something that should go to everybody in the country, but those might might qualify. I would rather see that coming out of an agency like NOAA the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, an agency that doesn't do politics, that doesn't have the power to imprison people, that doesn't essentially suck up to the president. It may be an executive branch office, one that's related to infrastructure rather than policing. Kathleen, thank you for the call. Robert Weissman, who's the president of Public Citizen, has just come up with a new crime report. He's talking about the FBI's crime report. And he says the whole tough-on-crime posture is just an act that uh, Donald Trump and Jeff Sessions are doing. And he notes there, they're plenty cruel to vulnerable immigrant families. They're e- eager to throw the book at low-level nonviolent drug offenders. But when it comes to the rich and powerful, to corporate criminals and corporate wrongdoers, Trump and Sessions are full of empathy and eager to let them off the hook with a warning or less. In practical terms, law enforcement against corporate wrongdoers is plummeting under Trump. They just Public Citizen just released this study. It was in July. They released it. it was, it's titled Corporate Impunity. And they found that in 11 of the 12 agencies led by Trump administration officials in 2017, penalties for corporate crime, penalties for corporate wrongdoing declined. In more than half of these agencies, penalties declined by more than 50% with the steepest declines in the U.S. EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, 94% decline in enforcement. Just think about that for a minute. I mean, can, can you imagine if, if, uh, if you were to learn that the police agencies, that the police departments of, so, say, one particular city, um, you know, uh, let's say uh, San Diego, the, there was a 94% crime uh, a 94% reduction in the arrest rate. So you'd see the crime rate drop, right? But crime isn't actually going down. Just the arrest rate is going down. 94%. Who, what crimes are they ignoring? What crimes are they letting off the hook? I mean, it would have to be huge. It would have to be widespread. It would have to, be, it would have to span a whole broad spectrum of activities and behaviors. What would it take for that kind of of uh, shift in behavior to be noticed by all of us right? hey you know suddenly the cops are are only arresting six percent of the people they used to arrest did crime go down no crime actually is now starting to go up and corporate crime of course is going up in the face of this lack of prosecution particularly by the environmental protection agency u uh, s department of justice for ninety percent ninety percent drop in prosecutions of billionaires and corporate criminals by the Justice Department. A 90% drop. We'll see where it all goes. Anyhow, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. It requires you. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. Have a great afternoon, evening, whatever it may be for you. You've been listening to Tom Hartman.